Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Talking to Ourselves podcast. I'm Omid Farhang, founder at Majority. And today we're going to switch things up a little bit. Today, my guest is Simon Cook, CEO of Can Lions. And we want to have Simon on because like so many creatives out there, when I started my career, it was quickly beaten into me that winning Can Lions are important. And it's a thing that we should want. And it's a thing that we should aspire to. It wasn't until about 10 years after I started that I got to attend my first Can Lion and have returned every year since. And it's an event that is exhilarating and daunting and brings out your party side and brings out your social anxiety side. And it's a place to get drunk and it's a place to get sober. And it really, for all of these kind of uh, contradictory reasons, is not what I thought. And so I know what's true for me is true for so many creatives out there who've never experienced the festival firsthand um, or who have questions or, or feel like this thing that's so important is still somewhat you know, shrouded in some mystery for them. So we wanted to have Simon on and ask him, you know, how are judges selected? How does the judging process work? Uh, how do case studies work? Why do things win versus lose? What really happens that week you can? And so this episode, over the course of the next hour, you'll get answers to all those questions and more by a guy who's more qualified than anyone in the world to answer them. Simon started his career in earnest at Can Lion over a decade and a half ago in an entry-level position. He worked his way up the ladder, working pretty much every job you could have um, at the festival, culminating now with CEO. And he's an incredibly impressive guy uh, with a lot of, of institutional knowledge um, and so I was really looking forward to meeting him and talking to him, and I hope you'll enjoy it too. This is Simon Cook and I talking to ourselves. Um, I, I must say, actually, Lolly sends his best. He was the guy who connected us in the first place. Well, we, we start by, by sharing our gratitude for the great Lolly Thompson at McCann London for connecting us. Um, and I don't just call people great, um, you know, obligatorily. I mean, he truly is the great. He's a great guy. And you always know when you're getting a, um, an email from Lolly, by the way, because it always starts, yo, 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 oh, dude. I know. You could yeah, take all his emails and just you tur make, turn them into a concept album. <laughs> He'd love that. So, Simon, before we start, I, you listen, before we start, I thought I'd just share with you this. You know, you mentioned you listened to a couple episodes. Um, you know, I do intros for every episode, so, so the audience knows who they're hearing. And... Um, in the early going, I would do these intros and I would, I would say all of the accolades that people would collect and the intros would get way too long. You know, it'd be three, four minute intros because I would say, you know, he's won a thousand uh, Clio's and a hundred pencils. And, um, and so what I realized was, man, this needs to get shorter. What I'm going to do is I'm just going to condense this to just can wins because can wins are sort of assumptive of all the other wins. So my first question, Simon Cook, how do you feel about maybe letting me wet my beak, get a little kickback on all this free advertising I'm giving you? <laughs> what do you mean? You're after a lion. You can't bribe me for a lion. I mean, you have to win one. Is that what you're after? I don't know. I'm just thinking maybe like a little bit of like a, a, just a few, you know, a few advertising shekels or pounds or euros, you know? I mean, I feel like I'm basically doing an advertisement for Can at the beginning of every episode. <laughs> I, I did notice that on a couple that I uh, listened to, and I was very diligently researching this format. But um, we'll see. We'll see how this goes, and then uh, maybe at the end we'll come to an arrangement. Okay, that's fair. Simon, we start every episode in the same place. Where are you from, and what did your parents do? Yeah, for sure. So I am a, a Devon guy. I grew up in Devon in the southwest of England. Um my dad was in, I guess, what you would have called then information technology, which was um, <laughs> a new territory for him at the time, I think. And my mum was a, she was a stay-at-home mum. Or, you know, sometimes she would look after other people's kids. So our house was always very full. Um, I'm the youngest of three boys. And, you know, fairly early on, my parents separated as, as parents sometimes do. So around the age of five, my, uh, my dad's work took him to, to London. So, you know, me and my brothers, we'd spend school holidays in East Dulwich, which was definitely uh, not as fancy as it is today, if you know the area. 
Uh, I don't recognize it now. <laughs> so I had a really interesting mixed upbringing, really, of spending half the time uh, in Devon by the sea, you know, by the moors, the countryside, and the rest of the time stomping around places like Camberwell and Peckham and Brixton and Dulwich, um, which was great. It was creative and diverse, and I was hooked from day one, I would say. And stomping around Devon, what did 11-year-old Simon want to be when he grew up? What was your dream? 11-year-old um, Simon, I don't think he had a clue, to be honest. I think all that I knew around that age is that I wanted to be doing something that I enjoyed, um, as we all did. But I, I, thought, I thought that might be something in advertising or graphic design, art direction, perhaps. Um, and I probably couldn't articulate it at the time. And this might sound crude, but I, I wanted, I was very aware that I wanted to do the thing that made me forget to shit and eat. And that sounds really crude, but that it's the feeling I'm talking about more than anything else. I love that feeling, you know, when you were so immersed in something and it could have been an art project or, you know, something creative that I was doing at school that just made time either stand still or, or you know, go really, really fast. And before you know it, hours have gone by. Um, so I guess, you know, very progressive people would say something that, that makes you feel like you're in flow or be in flow. But as a 12 year old, of course, I didn't know what that was. I just knew that I wanted to create. I enjoyed that feeling of putting new things into the world and solving problems. Chris Rock uh, talks about it, like the difference between a job and a career. When you have a career, there is not enough time. When you have a job, you look at the clock and it's 4.30 and you actively think to yourself, I'm not going to look at the clock again until it's five. And you fight your eyeballs to not look at that clock. And it feels like an hour has elapsed and you look up and it's only been seven minutes. Before you had a career, did you have any jobs where you were, where you were uh, painfully hoping the clock would speed up? Yeah, for sure. Definitely. Um, I always worked. I worked from a really young age. That was either in hospitality or you know, a couple of call centers in there as well, or bars. And, you know, I mean, I really, I really hope and wish that people would include more of that kind of information on their CVs or their, their resumes in the US. Um, no matter what they're applying for, I love seeing that stuff. You know, qualifications and degrees will take you so far, but as a lot of people, a lot of your listeners can probably relate to, if you, you've seen that someone's run a bar, or been front of house at a busy restaurant. Um, it tells you so much about their work ethic. It tells you about their understanding of people and human psychology. And that's, that's something that you can't buy. Um, so I think we need to be better about telling, telling some of the stories around our humble beginnings because there's, there's so much gold that comes from those first forays into work. I totally agree. Anthony Bourdain has probably put it better than anybody talking about sort of everything he needs to know about someone he can learn um, based on whether they worked at a restaurant. When I interview younger creatives, especially where there's not a lot to look at in terms of a book, you know, tell me about playing on a sports team or being in a band or working in a restaurant because, you know, yeah, you don't shoot a basketball or kick a ball, soccer ball or sing anymore, but it tells me that you can be part of something that's bigger than yourself. You know, you can perform under pressure. You can play a role. Like these are all things that, you know, you don't realize their skills that you're developing at the time that are highly transferable as you become an adult. Yeah, I totally agree with that. And even, you know, the, the humble beginnings where you, you start the very beginning of your career as well. So, you know, I, I, I was fortunate enough to go to university. I was the first in my family to go to university. I went to a place called Sheffield, for those of you that know it, um, and then moved to London shortly afterwards and, and went back to Brixton. That, that was not a coincidence it was purely because the rents were cheap at the time and at the time I didn't have a job to go to and so you know I took many many unpaid internships and you know I worked the mailroom at Mindshare and took part in internships at places like Wyden and Mother and we was very grateful for those opportunities but yeah we don't hear enough about that we hear about you know the careers that have they're a bit closer to where we are today. So I think just being really open about those humble beginnings is, is reassuring and encouraging the people out there who are just starting out. There are so many different jobs at ad agencies. When you're interning, I think it's interning at an ad agency is one of the best things 
that someone right out of college can do, I think, because, um, you know, you're really getting a taste of a number of different professions and sort of getting to try them on and see where, you know, your passions may lie. Where, where was that for you? Did you want to be a creative? Did you want to be a producer? Um, I didn't know I was still exploring. And so I was doing more on the creative side and, and loved that, but it's, it, it was still very much in its infancy. It was after the kind of very short stint at mother that an entry level position came up at can lions. So I didn't really get much time to explore the agency world because this position came up and I figured it was a very small company at the time. You know, there was 28 people in total at Can Lions. Um, I think I was the 29th or 30th employee there. And um, I'd heard there was a, a new CEO. So Phil Thomas had just taken on the leadership of, of Can Lions at the time. But I think the thing that was really appealing was, you know, working in the as an, in an entry level job in the entries team, as it was then called, um, the job was really reviewing every single piece of work that was entered into the festival. So I thought, you know, what a as a stopgap, and that's what, how I thought about it at the time. What a great opportunity to to see all of this incredible work coming from all over the world that you wouldn't ordinarily get to see. You know, putting yourself in the shoes of the jury. Um, and at the time. You know, I thought that would be an interesting, as I said, stopgap before I joined another agency or did something else. But, uh, you know, destiny had other plans. So let's get into it. I think uh, you've now so you've been at um, Can Lion for seven years and you just talked about your first job um, reviewing reviewing entries and your current job is at CEO as a CEO. So you're really the qualified CEO who sort of you know, done a lot of those jobs every step of the way and really understands all the facets of the operation. I think, um, you know, first of all, for, for the ad school students um, or for the less experienced creatives, everyone has heard of CAN. Um, but just for the sake of hygiene, as we get started here, let's start off just by defining our terms here. For, from the CEO himself, what is CAN Lions? What is CAN Lions? Uh, CAN Lions is the international advertising festival of creativity um it's been running since 1954 it started as a, an awards for tv and cinema advertising since then it's grown massively um you know there are now nearly 30 lions and we have a, a content program and networking opportunities and we like to think of it as the global meeting pace place for people in branded communications and beyond and really as we saw you know, this year, it's it's also a chance to come together and belong. It's about connection. It's where people come together around this shared belief that creativity has the power to change people, businesses, and, you know, if we're feeling really lofty, even the world. Well done, sir. You know, part of why I wanted to, to have you on is because to the majority of the ad community, I think there's still a lot of mystery around can you know if you're lucky enough to attend can on a regular basis i think it feels like it feels like everyone is there um but the truth is i you know really a small fraction of the industry is there so for most of the industry they know it's important and they know they want to win a lion but they may not totally understand why especially early in their careers other than just sort of a natural competitiveness um and a belief beaten into them that it's it's the best one or it's the most important one. Um, that's my observation. First of all, does that perspective come as any surprise to you as someone who's, who lives and breathes it? Um, no, I think really early on from from joining the, the business, it, it became very clear just how important it was to people, much more than I realized being an outsider or someone looking in. Um, no, I think it's it's something that we all take very seriously. It's very humbling. Um, it's a great privilege. And I think because of that, you know, that that really plays out in how we operate. You know, we 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 have very high standards that we try and stick to um, because people do hold it in such high regard. Um, and it's been a really interesting time. You know, over the past couple of years, it's gone from being something that happens once a year and let's face it let's be real it's something that only a privileged few get to go to um so during the pandemic it was a really interesting time because for two years we we didn't run the festival we couldn't and had to 
pivot very quickly into into digital, not knowing how that would go. And we were really surprised and, you know, very encouraged by the fact that nearly, well, over 100,000 people tuned in to see a digital version of this thing that we do every year. And I think for us, that really opened our eyes to the opportunity of, in many ways, democratizing what we do and democratizing creativity beyond the quasettes. So, you know, opened up a very interesting and new and exciting period for us. Yeah, that's interesting. And especially, you know, coming out of COVID, and I think there was sort of a reassessment of what do award shows mean to our industry and what do these festivals mean? And they're, it's very easy among the most cynical to sort of dismiss them as vanity projects. Um, what I know now to be true is that, you know, you win a lion, it could change your career. You win a lion, it could be shorthand to the agencies you admire most that you have some qualities that they're looking for. Um, to say nothing at that next tier of, you know, as we talk about networks of the year and agencies of the year, you know, multi-million dollar pieces of business move based on the performance of an agency or a network it can. And so, um, yeah, you're damn right it's important to people because it really, it, can, it, it, it swings fates. Um, and it sets people on unexpectedly different trajectories based on their ability to have that sort of miraculous big year at Cannes where you win a Grand Prix or you win multiple things and the industry starts to look at you a different way. So I just, you know, you talk, you just touched on it a little bit, but sort of the responsibility of, of what it is that you're doing separate and above handing out trophies. And, 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 and maybe I guess the question is, in your mind, what are some of the biggest misconceptions or sort of unfair criticisms about can that, that piss you off? Um, I think that's a great question. I wouldn't say they, they piss me off because I, I think I very realistically see the situation for what it is, which is, you know, sometimes can lines can become a bit of a, a reflection of the industry and sometimes a bit of a kicking boy for some of the woes of the industry as well. And so you, you do have to become thick skinned. Um, there's a lot of adoration. There's a lot of, you know, there's a lot of love for lions, but also there's a flip side to that. And you no, know, I think all we can do really is have regular contact with as many of our customers and community members as possible to try and understand what some of those frustrations are. Um, but, you know, if we're talking about, what, what gets me a little bit riled sometimes, perhaps things that I don't believe that we truly have a, a hand in, um, that can be frustrating. I don't think that's very fair sometimes. Um, but on the whole, I think we're extremely uh, fortunate and, and very lucky to not only have this global community that, that come every year or participate in any way they can, but also, that they care enough, that they care enough to get in touch when it's good and when they think there's, there's stuff that we could be doing better because they want it to be better, they need it to be better. And we appreciate that so much. In 2018, you accepted my friend Eric Monet's invitation to come speak to the McCann World Group uh, Creative Council for which I was a part at the time. And it's seared into my memory when you said at that time there was something like, 30,000 entries and 3% will win a lion and less than 1% will win a gold. Um, and it especially stuck out to me because, you know, I can speak from personal experience that um, to whatever extent I've, I've contributed to those 30,000 entries, I felt like every single one was going to win. And I'm pretty sure the same is true for every single person who's paid, you know, every single entry fee is we all have this sort of um, irrational bias toward our own work. Um, and, and, and why shouldn't we? Because we've lived it and we put all these, all this, you know, blood, sweat and tears into case studies and all that. But, um, you know, that was in 2018. Again, just to sort of set the stage for, for the remainder of our conversation, I'm guessing the, the big number has gotten bigger and the percentages have gotten smaller. Or are you allowed to sort of talk about, you know, what the volume of entries is and, and, and just the degree of difficulty uh, to actually win a bronze or get shortlisted, much less, you know, to win a Grand Prix? Um, interestingly, the numbers, the conversion numbers have stayed the same. So every year, um, 10%, roughly 10% of the entries entered will get shortlisted. 
3% will win a lion. And as you said, you know, winning a gold or Grand Prix is less than 0.01%, I believe. Um, so that degree of rigor and consistency um, is something that our juries take really seriously. And, and this year was, was no exception. I thought they did a phenomenal job and were obviously delighted to be together after two years of, of having to do some of that stuff remotely. I was there and it was just so great to see old friends and reconnect with old colleagues. And there was really just this, this spirit of gratitude in the air, um, which is saying something for, you know, again, it's a, it's an industry where, um, it's easy to be jaded and it's easy to sort of lean into our, our cynicism, uh, just as a, as a sort of cheap way to connect with each other. And it just felt like the levels of that were at an all-time low and there was this sort of gratitude. Um, you talked about the judging process and the rigor around judging. Uh, maybe just talk a little bit about how do you select judge judges? What are the responsibilities of judges? Uh, what's maybe the most important instruction you give to judges? Yeah, sure. So we're, we're fortunate enough to have, you know, over 100 official representatives from around the world and they might be running... Um, they run their own businesses. There's no, you know, financial exchange. They are there to be an extension of our brand because that's mutually beneficial. And we work with them because they're close to the markets they serve because we're a global organization. It's really important to us that our juries are global in their nature. Um, so they will help us in recommending people from the market. And for every candidate they put forward, we insist that they they're putting forward a, a male candidate, it has to be a female candidate as well. And so then our team have the enviable or unenviable job, as you see it, of putting together this incredible puzzle. So we have nearly 30 juries now, 10 on each, and uh, it has to be balanced by Holdco, um, agency network, by race, by ethnicity, and also gender balance as well, and increasingly by specialism. So it's important to us that we have people who are representing the creative community, but also brands increasingly, because that's important to have their voice in the room. And then also technologists, media folks. So it is a, a multidiscipline table that we're dealing with. And it's their job really to not just judge, but curate, you know, curate a body of work, which they know and take very seriously and understand that when the lights go down at the award show, that body of work represents them. It captures a moment in time, um, but also it becomes a part of history and you know tells a, a really compelling story, we would hope, about what's coming down the tracks as well. Yeah. It is such a huge responsibility. I mean, there are other shows that essentially do all online judging and then maybe come together for one day. And here, you know, you have this collection of of you know, some of the busiest executives in the industry, you know, the fact that they're qualified to be a judge probably means they're running, you know, multiple pieces of global business. Um, and to essentially, you know, carve out four or five days to come early to Cannes, which is when the festival's not going on, sort of a strange biosphere to like kind of European bubble uh, for those who aren't, you know, who, who aren't, you know, their natural habitat isn't the French Riviera. It's this very strange sort of four or five days um, mm. where you're, you're spending kind of the whole day in this room and then you're, you know, you're going home and you're kind of sequestering yourself in a hotel. And this is all leading up to presumably if it was important enough for you to judge, it's important enough for you to stay. So, you know, it may be a 10 day or two week commitment for some people, um, you know, and some are also still trying to sort of do their day job. So when the, when the judging is happening, do you feel like judges are really able to kind of separate themselves from their, their normal um, movements and behaviors and responsibility and be really present there? Or is that kind of unrealistic and you can just sort of feel the stress of people trying to do two full-time jobs at once? It's <laughs> a great question. Um, no, I'm always amazed and, and really humbled by how seriously they take it. Um, so they, they've obviously had the conversation with their organizations, with their bosses, perhaps. Um, the level of attention that they bring is phenomenal. And I think that's because um, there is a respect for that space and that room and that table that they're at. Um, and they've got the buy-in of the people who've consented for them to be there. And 
you know, the, the biggest or nicest thing that we hear in terms of feedback is not just about you know, having the, the, the privilege to curate that body of work that we described and to build connections with all of those brilliant, diverse minds around the table. But um, it's, it's, also, it's also about having a bit of a, an education as well. So, you know, loads of people have, have fed back to us that it's like a, <laughs> like a masterclass in creativity um, because of what you learn in that room and because of who's around the table and, and because of the task in hand, which I think is just such a lovely thing. And it's, it's very reassuring for us because we, we know that they're giving up a lot of time and having to make a lot of sacrifice to, to give to that commitment. So I'm just glad that they are getting something back from it. You said there's about 100 judges per year. I'm going to guess on any given year, they're more like 300. Oh, excuse me, 300. Okay, so 300 judges all making this huge commitment. If I had to, if I was Las Vegas and I was setting the over under on the amount of judges who show up with the right intentions and then some drama happens that makes it makes them fail to fulfill their commitment and they end up just on the phone doing client meetings and not really participating in the way that um that you had hoped i'm going to set the the las vegas over under for seven executives per year is that, does that number sound high or low um no i think it's we've never really had any case maybe one or two in in the and it's it's actually more like nearly 15 years that i've been there you said seven earlier perhaps we can get into that later it's 15 years with clients um there's probably only been one or two cases where we've had to, you know, say to someone, you know, is your, is your head in the game? Are you here? Are you, are you, are you sure you want to do this? The, the rest of the time, the, the level of commitment is just, it's, it's unparalleled, um, which is phenomenal, really, considering the scale and also how busy some of these people are. Simon, my LinkedIn research fails me. <laughs> so let's, let's, well, run through the, let's run through the roles. What year did you arrive? And just, just take me through all the job titles leading up to CEO. Let's do it. Let's do it. As, let's do a rapid fire. I don't know if I can remember them all. Uh, so I started, it was an entry level position um, on the entries team. And, you know, that was super interesting because, you know, that was processing all of the work. But, you know, I'd also, I'd also be the guy that was hanging the exhibition down in the basement at 4am, or I'd be polishing the trophies and laying them out. Um, before they get awarded that night. So it was, you know, it was wide ranging in terms of responsibility. And then what happened was, is, you know, Phil, who was CEO at the time, who's been a great partner and mentor over the years, um, I think probably recognized that I could take on more. So I, I ran the awards team and then I took uh, the learning and, and talent function of what we do under my wing and then uh, launched the advisory service or consultancy arm of the business. And then the, there became an opportunity to, to step up once Phil was promoted to a, a more senior role within our parent company. And uh, look, I was given the chance and, you know, I'd never run a business before. Uh, Phil was very much backing the kid in the room, but I think he did that because he recognized that I'd, I'd, I'd risen through the ranks, but also that I think when you've done that, you have a huge respect for what's come before and the heritage of the brand. And if you're able to balance that with change and innovation, which is what I was about, because I put my hand up for new things all the time, then that's probably that's probably a good place to be for the leader of, of this particular brand, because it's it's one that's highly visible. And, you know, the smallest changes you make can have really large percussions to a, an entire industry. So it was um, it was a period of growth. I feel like there was a, a time where I was doing a different job every year or every couple of years, and then you know was very grateful to have the opportunity to take on the leadership role, which I've been doing for the last three years. I love that you talked about you know shining awards and 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 hanging displays because it's actually the biggest observation um, I've had around Can Lions. Um, I I was at a experiential agency called Momentum for many years. Mm -hmm. And and through that experience, I got to really get an appreciation for the art of putting on massive live events. And, um, you know, it's so much work and rigor to make everything seem so effortless and seamless. And so now, you know, so for those who don't know, the building where the festival takes place is called the Palais. It's this giant convention center. 
And it's a, you know, it's a massive building with endless rooms. And during the festival, every room is filled with judges and staffers and festival goers. And having had my experience at a live event agency, when I walk through it, I feel anxiety for you and your team every single time because it's such a machine. But the thing about live events, as, as I'm sure you can speak to, is um, when everything goes perfect, you've done your job adequately. When one microphone goes out or one video doesn't play or one person isn't standing where they're supposed to stand, you become the world's biggest asshole. Can you, can you talk a little bit about just, you know, the, 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 is it a feeling of heartburn and chronic diarrhea the week of the festival for you? Or is it such a finely tuned machine that you feel like you're sort of, you know, floating on a cloud? No, it's it's one of the most exciting weeks and you don't want it to end. As exhausted as you are and running on adrenaline, it's fantastic because it's it's the only time where you see, you know, the entire community come together and and around this thing that you're, as I said at the beginning, putting into the world that you've created, the team has created. So it's incredibly rewarding and a lot of fun. And you know, some people, those in the industry that know me fairly well, have said, you know, you're, you're very calm <laughs> considering what's going on. But I think that's that's a good barometer. I think I'm calm because we have an amazing team who, you know, understand the intricacies of this dance that we have to perform in order to make everything come together. And they do it so well. Um, and the one thing we accept is that things will go wrong. It's not if they'll go wrong, it's it's when and when they'll go wrong. And as I always say to the, the team and our, our mantras, things will go wrong, but it's what you do about it that matters. I mean, in 15 years, I just, I have to know, like, what is the most calamitous disaster? Have you ever had like a light fall and just wipe out an entire creative department from Brazil? Um, I would say for a, a global events company, the pandemic's definitely up there. It's in the top three. Um, but, you know, there's been things like, uh, the, I don't know if that remember. was outside your control. I'm saying what happened <laughs> at the festival where you're like, shit. Oh, I mean, it would be stuff like, uh, you know, when Bill Clinton was speaking and, you know, there'll be issues with security that we, you know, managed to pull off at the 11th hour, or it will be, um, that, you know, which seems pretty small in the whole scheme of things, but is a big thing at the time. If, you, if you've got a jury that just doesn't want to finish judging and might want to go on until uh, one in the morning, two in the morning, and realizing that you, know, you have to turn around a whole award show in time for the next day. So it's, it's minor hiccups like that that get the heart racing a little bit, but nothing major. I think we're, we're, we try and avoid these things as much as possible and have a whole year to plan so that we don't have massive things that go wrong. There's a lot of scenario planning as well. But the little hiccups along the way uh, make it interesting for sure. Well, that's another great point. I mean, you have all of these renowned speakers from around the world and they, you know, a lot mm -hmm. of them are outside of the world of advertising. A lot of them have accumulated great wealth or great fame and are used to be treated, used to being treated like, you know, the name at the top of the marquee. And you're trying to make everyone feel like the name at the top of a marquee that actually has probably, you know, at the end of the day, several dozen, if not, you know, a hundred names at the top. Just managing the egos of renowned speakers and making everybody feel special and um, and probably people who you think are going to be divas are actually really lovely. And maybe sometimes people who you think are going to be really lovely are super divas. H how is some of that just, um, you know, kind of ego management as it relates to the, the, the guest speakers and making sure everything runs smoothly? Yeah, I think I think the ego stuff is a is a bit of a fallacy sometimes, actually, because, you know, thinking back over the last 15 years and even some of the, the presidents we've had, if if they've ever been slightly demanding or, you know, what some people might term as a bit diva-esque, it's I think the thing you have to remember is because you know they're they're a bit scared. They're a bit daunted as well. Like a lot of them, you know, which we're very grateful for, see this as a career highlight. So always, certainly my approach and the team's approach is to try and put people at ease as much as possible and make them feel comfortable in what they're doing and make them realize that they deserve to be there. Because quite often it's just the task in hand that, that, that is perhaps making them a little bit uneasy. So I think, I think it's better to do that rather than try and manage it in any other way. 
the nights get late in Cannes and you're having dinner and all of a sudden you're having a couple drinks with your friends and then it's four o'clock in the morning. And it it is this this weird um, just kind of time warp. But for you, you're at work and it's the most important work week of your year. You know, are you in your hotel room with herbal tea by 1030? Are you essentially <laughs> running two lives where you're having these late nights and and early mornings? Like what is what does your day tangibly look like the week of the festival? Um, it's, it's a little bit, it's a military operation. It is, it is, a you know, it's a very full day, but that's mostly because we have one opportunity to, to see as many people as possible and to experience as much as possible, but also, you know, without the awards, we don't, what, what do we have? It's a, it's a conference in the sun. Yeah. And I think a lot of people assume that Phil, me, other leaders within the business spend our time perhaps on the beaches entertaining clients. And the reality is, is that we stay very close to the awards because it's without it, you know, the whole thing falls down. And so we take great pride in, in turning up to personally brief every jury, to check in on them every day, to make sure the team who are looking after the juries um, have everything they need because, you know, that above everything else is just, so important to the industry, the, the, the business, but also the brand as well. Yeah, I mean, during that four, five, seven day period of, of judging, are you just essentially wandering the premises for 15 hours, checking in on juries room by room? Well, there's, there's, there's loads of other stuff going on. So it's a, a combination of exactly that, but then also trying to see as, as many of our customers as possible. Um, there's a huge program of content, there's learning programs that are going on. So I think it's just making sure that the whole thing is going as smoothly as possible. Um, and also getting a chance to, to see everything as well. The festival's become quite big and there's only one week that we're putting it on. So making sure that I guess as the leader of the business, you've got, you're abreast of everything is really, really important. But as I said, we also have have really high standards. So I think it's about quality control as well. Um, and making sure that everyone there is as comfortable as possible and having a good time. The, the judges in those rooms are among the world's best creatives. They're, they're often, if not always, former winners. Um, they themselves are these students of advertising and repositories of knowledge. But when you walk into a room, Despite all of those qualifications, probably no one has seen as many case studies as you have seen. Do you ever find that juries are attempting to, you know, from your unique vantage point, elicit your opinion or, or break a tie? And, you know, do you have a, what if any influence do you personally have over what ultimately gets awarded? Are you allowed to chime in if you're asked? No, we have a very strict policy on that. It's, um, look, we I have an interest in in this because it, it, it's my background, really. Yeah. Um, and I, I feel passionately about it. And I have my own opinion, but I hold it because it's not my role. It's the role of the experts that we've appointed in the room. And we like to maintain a neutral position. I think really it's our job to, to help the presidents, especially, lead the process as efficiently as possible. And, you know, I'd like to think after after 70 years that we've got that process down. And it's interesting afterwards when the presidents say, like, yeah, I know I tried to do it a slightly different way, but I went with your way and it worked. And there's a reason for that. And I should have listened. <laughs> yeah. So, so, so that's, that's our role really. It's, it's to facilitate and to, and to guide rather than to, to voice an opinion. I've been on some award show juries where it really feels like this, like, you know, scene out of 12 angry men. And it's like, a, it's like this hung jury and, you know, it, the room is split and you're at an impasse and it feels like it's unresolvable, uh, you know, and you're at this impasse with this stranger from another country who you respect, but you really wish, you know, you, they, they would bend to your will and they feel the same way. And so, you know, your, is your responsibility in these moments with the jury judge, with the jury presidents, you know, again, not to, not to put your thumb on the scale, but maybe just to remind them of the original criteria that they're supposed to be judging the work against as, as part of the, the category that they've agreed to own or, you know, sort of, how do you help, how do you help overcome these impasses? Sure, because, they get, because they get fucking intense, man. Yeah, they can do. They take it so seriously as they should. Um, 
And we're fortunate in that we've seen probably most scenarios play out. So we know we know how things are going to go um, just because we've seen how it plays out in human human nature. And, you know, it might be that, you know, the jury on, on, on a, some year decide that they don't want to give a Grand Prix. And, you know, they want to make a real statement to the industry. And sometimes it's worth just digging into that with the president to understand, is this something that they feel really strongly about and that the work isn't strong enough? Or is it about making a statement because it's a bit of an ego play for the jury? Right. And, and I think it's just worth reminding them of the context in that situation. We'd never force anything, but we'll say, look, if you don't give a Grand Prix, can you just think about the statement that's going to make about your jury and the message that's going to send to an entire global industry? And then I think once you say that, once you, you know, just remind them of the context that they're judging in, it just helps them calibrate their thoughts around that decision. The so message is, I am God, and I am fine with that message. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. And then, you know, sometimes the discussions go late just because they feel so passionately about yeah. the work, which is no bad thing whatsoever. And so we'll always allow for that as long as the discussion is healthy. I knew the answer that you couldn't influence, but I had to ask you because when you came and spoke to us in 2018, as I mentioned earlier, I was at that moment feeling snubbed that something that I was sure was going to win gold a few months earlier didn't even earn a shortlist. And so I vividly remember sitting in the corner, quietly seething with animosity towards you personally for an outcome that you ultimately had nothing to do with just because you represented you know, this thing that I thought would be a success that, that turned out, you know, to not be the success I thought it would, it would be. So I'm guessing if this happens for me, this happens to you maybe somewhat frequently where people sort of unfairly put their disappointment, um, you know, in your lap. What part of your job is just managing the sort of irrational competitiveness of creatives around the world? I think people really care and, and, you know, I can't hold that against them. I think I'd, I'd much rather people care and felt strongly than, than not at all. Um, and so, yeah, there is a degree of that. You know, it, there are, you know, as you said, nearly 30,000 pieces that get entered, only 3% of them convert. You're going to have frustrations, but I think it's, again, it's, it's what you do with it. And I, I try and remind people of that if they're in the right frame of mind to receive it, which is, well, what are you going to do with that? You're going to, you're going to be angry about it the whole time or you're going to you know look at the piece of work again and look at what it won against and you know ask perhaps what the jury's criteria was and use that fire and put it into the next piece and i find that the people who do that tend to maybe even walk away with a lion the next year or the year after i mean for you know you've been you've been at this now for you know a decade and a half and so you've developed personal relationships with a lot of people who maybe started as creative directors and are now global CCOs. And there's, there's friendships there that develop over time. And so I am certain that you've had to have some therapy sessions uh, with people saying, you know, a much either softer or harder version of what you just kind of outlined. But yeah, I, listen, managing disappointment at Cannes is a very real thing. Um, and of those 30,000 entries, you know, no one makes the case study and pays the entry fee thinking they're going to lose. I, I said that already. Um, you know, we all enter with extreme bias towards our own work. So in light of that, you know, how should brands and agencies decide what categories to enter? And does any festival, much less can, have any responsibility to point out when a, when a entry is sort of absurdly irrational? Um, or, or, or is, or is that not the, you know, is that not part of the responsibility of a festival? Um, I'll take that. The first part of that question was, should it be done in collaboration with the brands? And I think wherever possible, absolutely. Yes. I'm sure the, um, the folks at AB InBev won't mind me saying that. And for those who don't know, they won the creative marketer of the year award at Cannes this year. Now they came to us five years ago and said, and made it clear that that was their aspiration. That was something they wanted to do within five years. And they achieved it. And, you know, during that, that first year, they made a very conscious effort to do the whole process collaboratively with their brands. So to build that trust, to bring them in so it wasn't just an agency responsibility to uh, fill in entry forms. And they had a great year. They had a great year. And 
I think off the back of that, that's instilled a process and a way of working, which is inherently uh, collective and collegiate, and they're in it together. And so there are benefits to doing it that way. And then the, the second part of your question, if I remember it, what was it, Amit? I love to ask, I love to ask, you know, seven to 10 part questions. So thank you for keeping up. <laughs> um, it's, my, it's my calling card. The second part is, again, 30,000 entries, a bunch of them will have a realistic chance of winning. There's also a lot of entries from people who maybe don't understand how juries work or don't understand mm. how case studies perform well. And, you know, they may, they may, they may enter something that does, that tells no story and feels like it is it has no chance of winning. And it's not a canned question; it's really a, a festival question. Do, you know, do, do the award shows and the festivals do they have any responsibility to to flag those to the entrance or or? or I tell, no? tell you what we do is um you know if if something that is clearly a, a car ad is entered into FMCG, we'll, we'll let people know about that. Like you you've maybe just picked the wrong drop down here. Um, but ultimately, it's up to the entrance to get it right. Um, what we will do, though, if people ask, and I don't think people realize we do this, is that if you want to get in touch afterwards because you want to understand perhaps why it didn't win, then our team will look into that for you. They'll look into it and say, well, it could be because the case film didn't have any results. And, you know, that's nearly 30 percent of the overall mark. Or it could be because you didn't consider these categories and we feel your work would have been stronger there. You know, it's OK for us to do it at that point because, um, you know, that the moment has passed and it, it doesn't give anyone an unfair advantage. But we recognize that there is the learnings that need to be taken on board for next time if they want to enter again. Do you feel like the right thing always wins? I mean, the credibility of the show depends on. You know, if the industry feeling like the right things are winning and, and I know the right things, the definition of that changes from year to year, depending on taste and depending on the sort of global environment and sort of comparative to what won the year before. But from your unique vantage point, as someone who's seen by now over 100,000 case studies, how often is your personal opinion inconsistent with sort of the final outcomes of what wins and loses? Uh, like, you know, how, how often are you surprised? Um, I, I think... And we hear this a lot from the, the jurors themselves, who maybe during the initial stages of judging, just because they're they're really getting through it, they're getting through the volume, will say, "There's nothing good here. I haven't. This isn't a good year. I haven't seen anything great." And then it's really interesting visiting them, you know, at the end of their journey, where they say, "We're so proud of this body of work. We feel like it's you know going to be a new direction for direct or brand experience or whatever it is they're judging." Um, and, you know, the other thing they say is, you know, it's, it's true what our predecessors have said, what people who've come before us have told us about this process is that the great work does rise to the top. So it is about trusting the process. And I think the surprises, and, you know, in, the, in recent years, we have seen a, a few surprises. Um, more often than not, the reaction to them is, do you know what, I, I've never seen that piece of work. It might be a small thing that came out of, you know, Asia or LATAM. And I'm so glad that one. I wasn't aware of it, but it's bold and brilliant and I love it. So often the surprises are some of the really, um, is the really exciting part, rather than just the same old thing that may have won at other shows before. Yeah. Yeah, it's interesting to think about the relationship between work that garners significant press and then work that later wins in can. And, you know, I remember John Mescal of Dumb Ways to Die fame, mm. my former colleague, and I, I think of him as sort of the award show whisperer you know, he, he really is this student of not just the best ideas, but how to position the best ideas and articulate them in case studies. And, and he just talked about, you know, as, as, as trite as it may sound, if a judge recognizes the work from something that they saw come across their ad age, ad week, Forbes, hype beast, Wall Street Journal feed, mm. there's going to be an instant sort of familiarity and an instant sort of bias toward it. So do you find that to be the case, the sort of the relationship between work that kind of lands in press and lands in culture versus work that, you know, maybe it's from another region or maybe it was just great work that that they did a shitty job of PRing at the time? You know, it, it, have you do, do you identify that same relationship? And do you think that relationship is maybe that relationship between press and award winning has changed at all in your tenure? I think it's I think it's changed more recently. 
Um, and I think one of the reasons is the composition of the juries. So this year, um, no, we had great feedback on one particular jury because of the, the mix of specialism within the room. And I think, you know, I was fortunate to walk in during one discussion when they were awarding a, a potential gold, gold lion. And I think one person was saying, oh, we have to award this because it, it won a, I don't know, a Clio or something else. And then another person in the room who was perhaps from a different discipline um, said, well, you know, I, maybe it has won this other award show, but did your daughter see it? Did your father see it? Did uh, your friend see it right. in the real world? Um, and did it affect them? Did it move them? Did it change their intent to buy? And I thought that was just a really poignant point. And I think because of that changing mix of people within the room, it is bringing a new lens to the way they look at work that can't be as easily guided by just what happens to be, um, you know, making headlines in the trade press. Yeah. You know, so often the fate of an idea rests with the quality of the case study uh, and creating case studies has become an art form unto itself. You know, I think I'm sure you've seen ideas where you said, oh, my God, what a brilliant idea. What a shame they didn't know how to articulate it properly in this case study. And then maybe the most annoying thing to judges is this idea is shit or this idea is non-existent. This case study is basically this giant glitzy container of fluff you know, trying to trick us in posing as an idea. So, you know, you've seen them all. Um, and, and in some cases there's a pattern, um, that if you stick to it or excuse me, not a pattern, but there's a formula that if you stick to it and you, you can fill in the formula with the right ingredients, it's going to work. There are other times where when you break free of the formula, it can surprise a jury or it can kind of create some disruption in the room and that can work. Um, mm. but you know, I just wonder for, you know, given your experience, you know, what are some of the kind of the qualities of the, of the best and, or if you think it's more helpful, some of the shittiest case studies in terms of, you know, storytelling that converts to, to, to gold winning and, and Grand Prix winning? I think if you, um, if, if you sit on a, a jury, a Lions jury, or if you've awarded in other shows before, you're, I think it was actually Rob Riley who coined this phrase, uh, your bullshit barometer becomes very finely tuned. So, you know, you become an expert, you're an expert in the work and that's why you're in the room, but you're also an expert in cutting through some of the hyperbole that might sit on the surface of some case films. Um, and I think, you know, the ones that don't aim to sell, but just tell are usually the ones that cut through. Um, you know, quite often the jury are dealing with work coming in from across the world. So I think the worst thing you can do is not explain a cultural context. Um, and so I think the more you can more over explain when it comes to what's going on in that particular country within that particular region, uh, the more chance the very international jury has of really understanding the, the crux of the issue. Um, and I think just, just getting to the truth, getting to the truth of the matter as quickly as possible, rather than a massive build up or set up is really helpful. And putting yourself in the, the shoes of the, the juror, you know, if they're watching 200 case films back to back on any given day when they're judging, you know, do the stuff that's going to help them rather than make you feel better about the work that you're showing them. So be empathetic, you know, get, up, get the message up, uh, up front, like you would a piece of editorial. And then if there's room to explain and expand, then absolutely do it. I think the biggest trap that some people fall into is that because there's a two minute limit on these things that they see that as a goal, you know, if you can tell your story in under a minute, absolutely go for it. Right. Rob Riley also said that Crispin Porter invented the modern day case study that we all, that structure that we all kind of follow today. Do you think there's any truth to that statement or do you call bullshit on that? Yeah, I don't know. I think, does Rob still stand by that statement? I think he does. Rob's um, funny because he's accomplished so much since he left CPB. But when we're with, <laughs> when I'm with him and he was in, when, he, when he's in a room with young creatives and trying to impress them, he's still talking about that era. I said, dude, oh, really? these yeah. guys were all toddlers when you were doing that. You've, you, you've gone on to such greater things, but it was a very, I was there with him and it was a very, uh, you know, it's a time we look back on very affectionately. So as a result of that, we probably, you know, tell ourselves some tall tales. I think he probably does still stand by that. Yes. I think a lot of agencies do because a lot of them use that approach yeah. from what I've seen. Yeah. 
Um, so we've talked about losing a fair amount. Let's 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 talk about winning. Let's talk about. You know, I was just with Patrick Milling Smith. He said that when they mm-hmm. won the Palme d'Or, which is you know the production company of the year, he got a personal call from you, and it was a great moment. And so I'm guessing if you're doing it for him, you know that's part of your responsibility is making these these personal phone calls. Let's tell me about calling an agency to tell them they just won a Grand Prix or the looks on the faces of creatives walking onto the stage, you know, for the first time, or just that the elation isolated from the jadedness. Tell me about that part of your job. Oh, I mean, that's, that's the best part of the week. It's, um, I remember calling Patrick, actually, he was incredibly humble and, um, you know, very surprised. And it was, it was a great call, but you know, one thing that we, you know, maybe we should probably do it at some point is record some of these responses because they range from, you know, someone like Patrick, who was, you know, obviously very excited and, and but quite contained to people screaming at the top of their lungs. And you can hear the team around them just erupting in this, uh, this amazing celebration, which then carries, carries them through right to the uh, award show where most people see them on stage doing exactly the same, but live. Um, so maybe we'll try and capture more of those moments and show them. But um, yeah, like you said, it's, it's, it's career changing and um, business changing for agencies and for, for increasingly for the brands as well. It's really interesting that, you know, some of the brands who are winning are now starting to include some of those accolades, those lion wins in things like their annual report, because they're yeah. starting to see a correlation between award winning creativity and their business results, which is only a good thing for our industry, I think. I had the uh, the honor of of winning one Grand Prix in 2019 for uh, uh, a project called Nike Church, and I was boarding the I plane. I was boarding the plane from New York to 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 France to come to the festival. We entered it five times. The other four entries didn't even shortlist, so I had no expectation of a phone call that I get literally two minutes before we're about to take off. You called Eric Monet, who was sort of the head of creative excellence at McCann. He called me, told me we won a Grand Prix. Basically, when I land, come to the Palais and collect it. So I get that phone call, and then we take off for an overnight flight where there's no internet, no connection to anyone. My TV's not working. I'm supposed to be getting some sleep, and I just lay there with my eyes open. I can't blink. I've got this shit-eating smile on my face, and I'm just sitting with this information for you know, a seven hour flight. So it's just, and then you get to land and finally turn your phone on and, and share the, share the joy with all the people who are involved. But that's my, that's my story. I don't know. You couldn't record that. That, that'd be, that wouldn't be the most riveting eight hours, but that's my story. That's amazing. Yeah, no, it's a, it's a privilege and a pleasure to do. And it's, it's probably not something that I should still be doing, but it was, it was one of the very first jobs I had my first year working at Ken Lyons was to call the winners and let them know that, they won. So it's something I've perhaps rather selfishly held on to. Something I didn't appreciate till I saw your speech this year is, you know, countries win- winning their first award ever. And that, I, I, you know, that happens every year. And this year was no exception. What were the, some of the countries that won their first Can Lion this year? And I don't know. So what, what do you make of that accomplishment for a country that's never sort of enjoyed that particular creative success? Oh, so I, one that stood out this year was... Um, well, two ends of the spectrum. There was a, a country that won its first Grand Prix ever, and that was Portugal. So you can imagine the reaction there. And then first lion ever this year was Mongolia. Um, and it's it's really interesting to see what happens when that first lion win comes through. I remember a few years ago, it happened with Ecuador, who'd had many years of entering and, and never never won a lion. And then when they did win a lion, finally, it was incredible because you could see how it became infectious not just within the agency community but um, at a country level as well so phil who was ceo at the time was invited by the uh, the president to come over to to ecuador to put that lion into a case within the national museum there and wow. it was fascinating to see what happened straight after because that one lion became 10 lions became 20 lions became 40 lions over about a five-year period um and so you know it's just interesting to see what happens when a whole country gets behind creativity that's amazing so just kind of wrapping up here you know at our best the connection between 
creativity and putting brands into culture and winning awards is pretty indisputable. And it's great that you even have more clients on juries now. And so it feels like agencies and clients are, are sharing the ambition of winning a can lion in a way that maybe didn't feel as shared, you know, five, seven years ago um, for the very business-minded CMO who kind of easily could dismiss the awards as, as um, you know, sort of severed from, from their business objectives. Yeah. But, but the good ones today see the connection and you don't, you don't necessarily even have to make that argument to them. And they want it as much as you do. That's great. Um, and they want it for the right ideas and the real ideas. And then we also know that, you know, over the decades, um, there's this sort of infamous practice of creating fake ads or sort of absurdly mm -hmm. embellished ads that are sort of ergonomically designed to perform well in these rooms. It's probably harder to do in the age of the sort of internet in everybody's pocket where you can you can check the work and kind of check whether it existed or not, but it still happens. I remember when I started in the industry world, there was a whole, there was this, I don't know if it was a myth, but it was this one of the big holding companies. Like they just have a department and it's just all these like badass Brazilian and Argentinian, Argentinian guys. And all they do is just make like fake art ads that don't exist just to win awards. So I know you've gone to great lengths to weed this out and stamp this out. And it's, it's bad for the industry when fake work wins mm -hmm. awards, but where are we on that? Does, does it ever slip through or is it, is it an impossibility in 2022 to win for fake work? I'd like to think it's uh, an impossibility. I think it's changed, you know, um, maybe, I don't know, 15 years ago, it was about, um, you know, trying to run some very obscure ad in the back of a publication that no one sees right. in order to mark the criteria. I think today it's interesting just because, um, you know, one of one of the areas that I think the industry is possibly over-indexed in in the past few years is is purpose. And well, I mean, I'm really loathe to use that word because I think it's become quite muddied and misused in the context of award shows. So you know, as we know, every brand hopefully has a purpose, but people now use that word um, as a shorthand for work that has perhaps attached itself inauthentically to some kind of social or societal cause or good advertising. Um, you know, and it's our belief that there's there's nothing wrong with brands that want to drive purpose and profit in equal measure. Um, and, you know, our, the next generation of, of consumers also wants that as well. Gen Z expect brands to step up and contribute where perhaps governments are not. And I think the problem really comes when this is done inauthentically or when it's inauthentically executed. So when you have a very clumsy um, ad attached to some form of slightly bogus plug-in or add-on for the sake of credibility or recognition, or perhaps even in order to you know, um, up your chances of winning a lion. And I think thankfully people see through that most of the time. Um, I think authentic brands, that do good in the world whilst also driving their business. There's nothing wrong with that. You know, we encourage that. Um, but I would also add and say that there is absolutely nothing wrong with entering and celebrating great creative marketing that is designed to sell products and services in an entertaining or interesting way. And I think, you know, people just need to remember that. And it's something, you know, Marcel Marcondas from AB InBev said at the festival this year as well, like, let's not move too far away from that. You know, purpose, um, when it's done correctly, when it's driving business, it's all good. But, you know, just straightforward marketing that sells is also great. And there's just, you know, a final thought on that is, I think it's important to remember that when the lights go down at the award show in Cannes, there are more clients and brands in that audience than ever before. In fact, there are more and more coming every year. And I think that's a really good thing for our industry. And they're coming to the festival because they increasingly believe that creativity can be used as a, a lever for growth in the boardroom, which is great for us. It validates everything that we do. And I think it's important that the body of work that they're seeing and that the, the work that the jurors have so carefully curated inspire them to do the best and most impactful work that makes the case for creativity rather than leaves them with, you know, a sense of doubt or cynicism because it's not stuff that they recognize. Yeah. Sometimes it feels like 
brands are attempting to do the right thing for the wrong reason. Did you do this because you care about this or did you do this because you felt like it was the sort of the path of least resistance to an award? And, and I think you're right. I think the bullshit meter is so high and judges really sniff that out. I actually recall with, with the Nike church thing, um, it was a Saturday and I had like, was at the pool with my kids and I got a phone call from a, you from, pool. Yeah. yeah. And they, they wanted to, they wanted to vet a piece of information, you know? And, um, so people take it very seriously. We'll end here, Simon, your master of ceremonies. The boxing <laughs> world has Michael Buffer. We have this man. His voice box is a goddamn Stradivarius. One day he should be pickled and put in the Smithsonian. Um, when I won the Grand Prix, being in that audience and hearing him pronounce my name, Omid Farhang, uh, was a career highlight. Uh, for those who don't know what the fuck I'm talking about right now, who is this man? What is his deal? Does he talk like that all the time? Uh, I can only assume that you're talking about Juan Senor. Yes. Uh, yeah, Juan has been working with us for I think longer than I've been there. Um, and he is much, much loved by the industry. I think because of, you know, how inclusive he is. You know, he makes a big point of well, a very extravagant uh, flamboyant display of saying hello to everyone in the audience in every uh, language available to mankind. Um, but also he just brings such an energy to to things. And I think people who, who go for the first time probably think, who the hell is this guy? <laughs> but uh, as I said, he's got quite a following and, uh, you know, if, if he would ever not be there, I think I'd have hell to pay. So we're, we're glad that people are honored to hear their name spoken through those dulcet tones. Hearing, hearing him say your name is better than the award itself, I would contend. <laughs> I'll tell him that. <laughs> Simon, I think we covered it all. Was there a question that I should have asked you that you would like to answer before we go? Uh, no, I think, I think that's great. Is it all good from your perspective? It is, man. I, I really look forward to talking to you. This is a different kind of episode than any we've done before. But, but if there was one consistent thread through all you know, close to 60 episodes we've done, you know, the importance of can is in, I would, I would venture to guess every single one of them. And so I think to take a step back and talk about what this thing is and why it matters right from the source, from someone who's, you know, devoted his career to it, um, I think is going to, is going to be really helpful to, to people who, um, who made it this far. So, man, I appreciate your time and, um, and thank you for all you do to, to drive our industry forward and to bring us together. And, um, if I don't see you before then, I look forward to seeing you in, in June of 2023. Uh, Indeed, yeah. Thank you, Amit. And I have to say, listening to a couple of episodes, this is such a, a useful resource for people. So I'm so glad you're doing it and, and uh, honored to be an interviewee. So thank you so much. Great getting to know you, brother. Talk soon. See ya. Take care. Bye-bye. All right. Thank you to Simon. Thank you, as always, to JSM Music and the executive producer of this podcast, Jeff Fiorello. And as always, folks, if you're enjoying the podcast, please subscribe, rate, review, share it with a friend or colleague. And until we talk again, peace. Peace.